Welcome everybody, this is Growing Trends, and I'm with my uh, co-host Anne, who's smiling at me because she has a very nice glass of uh, French Provence wine, <laughs> and we are talking to Linda Stanley in the faraway reaches of the outback of Australia. Hello Linda, it's great to hear your voice. Hi Anne, how are you? <laughs> you know, we're, well, we're good, I think we're pretty much on complete opposite ends of the planet, aren't we? Almost. Pretty much. We're in Kansas yes. and you're in Australia. Pretty much. So what time of day is yeah. it for you? It is 8.30 in the morning here. What gotcha. time is it there? Yeah, and it's about, it's about 6.30 at night here. Yeah. 6.30, 7.30 yeah. at night. So yeah, that's about as opposite as you can get <laughs> in terms yeah, of timing anyway. <laughs> well, welcome to the show, Linda. Um, it's such a pleasure to visit with you and Chris and I have both enjoyed looking through the book that you most recently had published, and I want to hear all about this because it looks like you're featured throughout this children's book, and so I guess let's start with a little bit about you, a little bit of background about yourself, Brenda. Tell us about yourself. Okay. Well, the book actually came about through an accident I had probably about 13 years ago. I had a very bad accident and broke my back and was told I'd never walk again. After three years of intensive physio and mental struggle as well, I finally was walking. But during that rehabilitation and convalescence period, I made a sort of mental promise to myself or to the universe, really, I suppose. At one point when I was in a, a, a mental hole after not making much progress and thinking I really am going to be stuck not being able to walk again, I needed something to pull me out of that mental hole. So I threw, it was like I was climbing a mountain and throwing a pick up to the top of the mountain to pull myself up. I, I thought, no, I'm, I'm going to backpack around the world. And I threw this pick up onto the mountain mm. to pull myself out of the hole. Then three years on, when I was beginning to walk a little bit, I went to a spiritual healing class and I was given a message from my spiritual master and the message was, do the Camino next year. I had no idea what the Camino was. It sounded like a dance to me, tango, Camino. So I said, what, what's the Camino? And just at that moment, another lady from the class was walking past and she stopped with a look of shock on her face and said, excuse me, did you just say what's the Camino? Yes. And she pulled a book out of her bag and said, I've got a book on it here. It happened to be Shirley McLean's book on the Camino. So I read the blurb on the back and remembered making the promise to the universe that I was going to backpack mm. around the world and realized I was being told, okay, you made the promise, now it's time to do it. So uh, I went home to the family, researched first of all what the Camino was and it's a pilgrim trail across Europe through France and Spain to Santiago de Compostela and it's about 700 kilometres which is I think probably about 300 miles or 400 miles wow. in your speak. So I told the family I was going to do this. They, of course, thought I was out of my mind, seeing how I'd only just learned to walk again, and did their best to talk me out of it. Then when they realized it was not negotiable, I was, I was doing this. And after all, the universe had told me I had to do it, so I was doing it. I did the Camino, I walked the Camino. It took me six weeks, and it was an amazing learning experience. But at the end of that... 
I was hooked. I was hooked on long distance walking. So mm. two years later, I walked the road to Rome in Italy. And then two years after that, I walked the Bibberman Track in Western Australia, which is what the children's book is about. I was so blown away by the beauty and the flora and the fauna and the scenery on the Bibberman Track that I thought as I was walking, it took two months because that one is a thousand kilometres. I thought, what a shame that children today don't get the opportunities to go and play in the forest like I had as a child. And looking at my grandchildren, thinking it's such a pity that parents are so restrictive, and perhaps they have to be, but I do think we are all a little bit too obsessive today. It's such a pity that children are not allowed to connect with nature and spend so much time instead on screens, iPads, computers, smartphones, instead of running outside and connecting with nature. So I thought, I'm going to do something about this. Children need to at least have some curiosity about nature. So as I was walking the Bibbleman track, the, the idea came to me of writing a book for small children, starting with small children and perhaps later another one that, and another that uh, is a, for a little bit older. The Bibbleman track book, Grandy's Long Walk, is probably for two to ten-year-olds and it's called Grandy's Long Walk because that's what my grandchildren referred to it when the parents would say, where, or they would ask parents, where's where's Grandy? They would explain, oh, Grandy's gone on a long walk. So the grandkids referred to it as Grandy's Long Walk. So it seemed a logical name for the book. So the book, mm-hmm. the hook for the book is the thylacine, which is, some people say it's a mythological creature, but there's actually fossil remains of the thylacine. It is uh, an extinct animal. Another name for it is the Tasmanian tiger or the Nanup tiger. It's the same animal and it was pretty much hunted to extinction probably a 100 years ago. As uh, I was about to start walking the Bibbleman track, my husband John dropped me off at the furthest point. I felt it would be mentally easier to walk from the furthest point back to home, pretty much, which is Perth. And as he dropped me off, he waved and said, okay, enjoy your walk, make sure you take a photo of the thylacine. So the book is about all the creatures, the wildflowers, the scenery, and looking all the time for a thylacine, but not seeing one. However, in the book, on every page, there is a thylacine hiding somewhere on that spread for children to hunt out. And the objective is to create a curiosity about nature. What is And ask questions. What is a thylacine? What is extinction? Why does that happen? What are these other animals and what are these flowers that are all depicted on in the book? Every spread on every page relates to that particular section of the track and the flora and fauna are true to that area of the track. So it's a, it's a long track that the flora and fauna changes as you walk and throughout the book the flora and fauna is all different. And at the back of the book is a list with the names of the flora and fauna listed on every spread so that it's it's educational as well. We wanted to spread 
knowledge about the unusual flora and fauna that we have in this part of the world. So the illustrations are botanically correct as well. So we're getting a great response from children who find it really interesting and, and love looking for the thylacine. So, um, you know, until you saw that, it has said that, I, I hadn't um, realized that there is one on every page, and now as I'm looking through it, I'm, I'm seeing them. It, it reminds me of, do you remember the old Richard Gary book that had the yes. gold bug hidden on each page? Yes. And you had to find the gold bug. This is what it reminds me of. Linda, I have to ask you, because it's a wonderful thread to be, you know, trying to find that animal on each page and that that is your journey is always you're hunting for that particular animal but every page the photography or not the photography the the illustrations are so striking are they based off of photographs that you took a lot of them are yes a lot of them are based on photographs taken and others are from research to fill in you know the animals and the flora that um, were in the area but not necessarily in the photos that I took Right. Yes, the illustrator's done a beautiful but, uh, job. I mean, it's a very interesting treatment of color and texture and space and that's, and it looks like, I mean, I can imagine that it looks like I'm really there. So that's why yeah. I wondered if that was sort of the inspiration between, behind some of these because it's just, they're just so, I feel, when I look at this, I understand why the universe sent you. I feel that it's an inspired piece of work. I really do. I like hearing that background story. That gives it all that much more meaning for me, and I think for other people, too, as they pick it up. You can feel it. You can just feel it. It's like it's alive. Yes. Well, we've had artists here comment on how well done the illustrations are, so we're we're very... We're very happy about it. Yeah. And very happy with them. And I can see where it would be an obvious hit in Australia, but... I'm sorry, go ahead. I missed that. What did you say? Oh, and, and we're particularly thrilled with the response from, from children reading it. That we've been told by a number of parents that it's a, the children's preferred book at bedtime or story time. That's the book they choose now because they love mm. going through and looking at the pictures and finding the animals and, and, and asking what the animals are. So it's, um, it's very pleasing. Yeah. So... Linda, what, what's the actual history of the trail? Is, is the one? The Bibbulmun is the name of an Aboriginal group, tribe, uh, in years gone by that, that travelled that area between, it's between Albany and Perth, and that the Bibbulmun people travelled that area. So the trail was built to allow general public to access the beautiful areas, some of the scenery, as you can see in the book, some of the scenery is spectacular and the trees are fantastic. absolutely. Yeah. So we actually get a lot of people from, a lot of international people coming to walk the Bibbulmun Track. In fact, when Mm -hmm. I walked it, most of the people that I saw, because I was walking from the southern end upward, which is the opposite direction to the majority people walking it, the people that I met passing on the track were predominantly from Europe that had flown into Perth to walk the Bibbulmun. Do, do you have to take special precautions when you're going to take a walk like that? I mean, I know there are um, lots of uh, unusual um, animals in Australia these days. <laughs> well, the tiger snake was probably the most deadly that I yes. saw and probably the most deadly on the track. But if you choose the time that you walk, 
for instance, the snakes are most active in summer. It would be too hot to walk it in summer anyway. I don't think you would want to walk it in summer. Wintertime, there's, there's no snakes around then. So spring and autumn, I walked it in autumn. And I wore gaiters to make sure that <laughs> I come across snake unexpectedly. I would be protected by the gaiters. But other than that, it's, it, I felt completely safe on the trail even though I think the majority of people wouldn't walk it on their own, but I, being on my own, I, I've, after the first two days, I realised I was quite safe. I was a little apprehensive in the beginning. Plus, you have to plan it well. You need to carry everything, uh, your bedding, your food. You, you need to carry everything yourself. So you have to plan the food particularly. How long does it take? It took two months. How long were you walking? How many? Three months. Two months. And no days I stop in between and load up? <laughs> well, wow. I carried, I, because my back is needs to be considered, shall we say, I couldn't carry a lot of weight. Uh, so I could only carry enough food for a week. I spent three months before the walk dehydrating, cooking up casseroles and things and dehydrating everything in my little kitchen dehydrator and packing it up into 60 days worth of food and then uh, boxing up a week's supply and then posting it to towns a week apart so that I could go into the town after one week, collect my next food parcel and carry on. So it takes quite a bit of planning. Wow. But it was what about water? Certainly, water. There is a at roughly a day's walk apart. There is a shelter where you can sleep, and there's a water tank, so you can top up with water uh -huh. each night from the tank. So water was okay. not a problem, but uh, carrying the food and and planning it well too, so that you had you know, a week's supply and we're able to last that week and so planning the walk out as to how far you'd walk every day and where you would sleep every night and where you would collect your next food parcel meant that was quite, you know, you, you needed to keep up really. You had to keep up or you'd run out of food. Did you meet that. other people on the walk? Yes, I did. And, and there was uh, another chap who set out on the same day as I set out and we compared walking plans and we had exactly the same walking plan. So I knew he would be, he was walking much faster than I was, I knew he would be in the hut or in the shelter, it's not a hut, in the shelter that night when I got there. So that was, it was comforting to know that there would be someone there. However, a little further into the trip after a few weeks I began to have some problems with shin splints. I became aware that he was slowing down ahead of me to sort of keep an eye on me that he knew I was struggling so I didn't want to feel responsible for slowing him down so I pulled off the track and went to a doctor and when I came back onto the track I came back on a day apart so that I, so that I wouldn't be a burden on him. And somehow or other, further on, he must have taken a, a day 
off as well, or two days off, because he ended up a day behind me at the very end, which I wasn't aware of. I thought he was ahead of me. But anyway, it was comforting for a few weeks to know that there was someone else that was going to be there each night. But by the after a few weeks, I then became more confident that, that I was safe, that there was no dangers other than me doing something silly and perhaps hurting an ankle or something. There was no danger from external sources on the track. So I was then quite comfortable not having someone in the shelter at night and being a, a day apart from the closest other walker. So apart from that chap, the only people I saw were people coming in the opposite direction from Perth to Albany, so from, from the north down to the south, passing other walkers. And the majority of that, those walkers were Europeans. There was Swiss and French and German. They'd stop and have a chat and they say, oh yes, we've flown in just to do this Bibbulmun track. That was interesting to, to find that there was so much international interest in walking the track. That, that was just amazing. I, I, I remember in Europe there was a, um, a walk that I, I did um, a, along the Rhone Valley. It's called the Grand Traverse de Jura, for the Jura Mountains. Ah. And it was a similar sort of um, hike, but it was um, across the, mount- the, the Jura Mountains, which aren't that high, maybe 3,000 metres or something. But it was similar, and, and there were huts, and, and well, and it was France, so there were restaurants as well. I can just imagine how much fun that was. It's, um, yes. but that, but that was pretty courageous as well, to be honest. For you, that was really courageous. Well, having walked the Camino um, on my own, I, I, would, I would never have set out to walk the Bibbulmun on my own because it's so much further and so much more isolated. Uh, the Camino, the, like the Jura track, there's, there's restaurants you can eat at each night and a, and a comfortable bed to sleep in. Uh, whereas on the Bibbulmun, it's take your own food and take your own bedding and you're out in the wilderness on your own. So I would never have set out originally to do that on my own. A, a girlfriend was going to come with me, but she only lasted a day and pulled out. So, uh, and, and in hindsight, I, I think that was the best way because it was wonderful in the end to do it on my own, to have that freedom to, to think and to, be, to get in touch with nature. And I realized after a, a few weeks that I, I could understand how indigenous people can read the countryside and, and, and read the animals so well because you begin to, you begin to become in tune with, with the, the calls and conversations that the animals, the birds have. And even after just two months, I was far more in tune with the environment and aware of what was happening around me. So I could imagine that indigenous people who spend their whole life living in the in the bush can be so very aware and, and read the environment and, and track and all of the things that they can do. I, I began to see how they could learn that with just observation, observation and listening and watching and becoming in tune with nature. So did you, know, did you have any uh, major storms while you were walking? Or, no. Or things that were, say, um, heavy rain or uh, wind or anything like that? There was a bushfire 
so I had to detour around a, a burnt out area which also meant I had to detour around where the hut was for that night so that made it an exceptionally long and difficult day and some of that or oh, more than a day a few days uh, some of that walking was on roads which was hot and hard and dusty and so that section where the bushfire was and having to avoid the bushfire area made it an exceptionally tiring day and I couldn't actually make it into the next hut which is why in the book I slept in a tree. I stopped at that point and sat down and thought I just can't go any further and when I looked up opposite me was a sign on the tree with Yarrigal Hilton on the tree and and it was a hollowed out tree and I thought oh oh somebody else has experienced the same thing at the same point fine I'll sleep in the tree so it, it I only saw that because of a detour and because of a bushfire and because I was too exhausted to carry on that day wow <laughs> oh, that's just great. that made it quite fun. Oh, wonderful I was, story. Yeah, I was um, too concerned about sleeping on the track, and the bush was too dense and thick, and I was concerned of snakes if I stepped off the track. So, but I was concerned if I slept on the track, a kangaroo might come bounding along in the night and jump on me, and that would be the end of me. So, the tree was the perfect solution. <laughs> wow. So there, there is a tree on the track with a little label on it, Yarrigal Hilton, which is quite fun. That, I, yeah, that's in the book. Yeah, that's, that's, there's no coincidence. <laughs> yeah, it's just perfectly put there for you. That's wonderful. Yeah. So I'm just curious, Linda, where, where are you going next? Next? Well, now we've bought a chestnut farm, so I'm quite tied to the farm. I'm actually wondering whether... Uh, the next books might be farm-based, animal-based perhaps for children. Do you find we that the interest in the book is worldwide? Obviously, it's going to be true in Australia. I think it would be a, a favorite immediately. But are you finding that, it, that its popularity is spreading all over as well? Yes, I've had excellent reports from Britain. The first area outside of Australia the book went to was the United Kingdom and we're getting great responses from, from there as well. That The children are just loving to read and about the Australian animals and see the Australian animals and the flora and, and they're loving it too. So I'm hoping that the response and interest will be equally as great in, in the United States. Uh, of the species, I'm not that familiar with Australia, of the species that are mentioned in the book, I know the one that you that you say that you're kind of seeking all throughout your walk is an extinct animal. The other varieties of, the other specimens that are illustrated, are those unique to Australia? Are those particular life forms that are unique, you know, to your continent? Or are, are we going to find them in China? Are we going to find them in Great Britain? No, they are unique. I mean, I saw orchids, like in one of the drawings, I saw the orchids. I know a lot of the plant life is probably similar, but I'm wondering about some of the animal life. Uh, The the flora and the fauna is unique to Western Australia. Mm -hmm. The southwest, where the Bibbulmun Track is, is one of the top ten biodiversity hotspots in the world as far as the flora is concerned. Mm -hmm. There are more flora species unique to this area than many other countries. 
in the world. So we're one of the top ten biodiversity hotspots. And the fauna as well, the bird life and the animals are also unique. So it's very interesting to see people from overseas come and just be amazed by the, the weird animals we have here, they say. Can you add a little bit about um, how they, how people, our listeners, can contact you? Getting a copy of the book. And getting a copy of the book. People can contact us through the farm website, which is www.chestnutbray.com.au. I'll spell that. That's chestnut, C-H-E-S-T-N-U-T-B-R-A-E.com.au. And the email is info, I-N-F-O, at chestnutbray.com.au. I think that's probably the easiest way to, to contact us. Well, thank you so much, Linda. I totally enjoyed this. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. With our You're very welcome.